Welcome, everybody, to the 13th episode of the Dunkin' with Dom podcast. Uh, yet again, it's me, Dominic Chapone, your host, uh, joined today by another wonderful guest, uh, Austin McDonald. Welcome to the pod. Yeah, thanks for that, Dom. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. Happy to be here. All right, well, I'm glad to have you on because, obviously, it's been a crazy uh, past couple of weeks for the NFL. I think in the uh, spirit of March Madness and the NBA trade deadline, we forgot that uh, NFL free agency is going on this whole time. The draft is on its way uh to being here and arriving so i just want to ask you to start off before we get into uh some specific transactions uh what's been your couple of thoughts regarding nfl free agency some of the moves uh, around the league uh some of the qb situations, some of the draft trades all that stuff oh yeah there's definitely some topics to note here for sure this i think this has been the year of the wide receiver there's been a lot of very high caliber wide receivers uh getting signed uh guys such as kenny galladay you got Will Fuller, Juju Smith-Schuster, A.J. Green, Emmanuel Sanders, and we'll talk about all those contracts a bit more later. But another thing that's important to note about free agency in general was the uh, decrease in the salary cap this year. Hasn't happened for the longest time, but due to COVID-19, obviously the league had less revenue, so they decreased the amount of money that teams could spend on free agents. So we're seeing a lot of one-year contracts, especially with skill position players like quarterbacks and wide receivers, guys who are looking to enter free agency next year, try to make a bit more money because they couldn't with a decreased salary cap this year. Yeah, I'm a huge NBA fan. One thing I noticed is that the uh, obviously COVID-19 affected a lot of free agency, even for the NBA right now, and especially with the NFL, especially now more than ever, a lot more shorter-term deals, not much uh, – uh, salary cap uh, stuck to a couple players in the long term. It's definitely been a lot more short-term deals, uh, just trying to get guys underneath that cap, obviously. How do you think this affects, like, future, like, not only teams right now, but also, like, uh, the NFL, like, in the next couple of years or so? Well, I see this as a very temporary measure. Uh, we're seeing a lot of actually longer contracts in the NFL, notably uh, Patrick Mahomes signing that uh, 10-year deal. But uh, the one-year deals this year, I do attribute to the decreased salary cap, and the salary cap is expected to increase exponentially in the next couple of years with the growing popularity of the NFL. And once they're getting fans back in attendance, you're going to get a lot of ticket revenue there. So uh, I don't see this uh, one-year trend or these shorter contracts being a long-term solution. It's mainly just uh, players looking out for their own best interests, trying to enter free agency again right when the salary cap is increasing. So I want to get started here with free agency and talk about a deal that actually took place the other day uh, involving my hometown team, the Miami Dolphins. They have the third pick from that uh, Larry Tonsil trade where they got the third, uh, a Texans pick that ended up being uh, third overall. Uh, they moved back to number 12, get a bunch of assets, including a couple first-round picks, and I think a second or a third, and then moved back up to six, basically giving up a little bit of, like, not too much value. Um do you think that was the right move for the Dolphins, uh, trading back and uh, keeping, uh, I guess, acquiring more assets? Or do you think they should have stayed at that number three spot? Uh, absolutely. I thought this was an incredible move by the Dolphins. I mean, obviously, Laramie Tunso agrees. We've seen his uh, social media talking about how he's garnered four first, seconds, and a third, which very impressive, especially considering that a uh, little debacle we went through on his draft night. But uh, I think it's a great move considering the uh, quarterback class that's coming out of this draft. Uh, you've got a bunch of hyped guys. You've got Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson who are projected one, two, but then you've got guys like Trey Lance, Justin Fields, even Mac Jones who are talking about being top 10 picks. So I think the Dolphins having to pick as high as three. And in my personal opinion, not in the market for a quarterback. I think you got to give to a little bit of time. Uh, so moving back a bit and then acquiring all those assets Letting a team move up like the 49ers, who 
are rumored to be looking for a quarterback, although I'm not sure if that's also the best move for them, but it's definitely starting to seem like that's the direction they're going to go. So for Miami, who definitely is not going in that direction, I think that's a great move for them. Yeah, it seems like Miami here definitely doubled down the Tua experiment here. They're basically going to say, uh, we're going to trade down, get some more assets for the future, and we can either use that for to build a core around Tua or to trade for other guys, to sign other veterans. But this seemed like a move saying that they'd rather have Tua on their roster than, say, take um, uh, other non-QBs are not Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. Um, do you think Tua has the chance to have that sort of potential as, like, a starting QB that can, you know, like, win a playoff game, lead your team to a title, like, something around that, um, around that range? Um, honestly, I'm thinking uh, as far as playoffs go, obviously uh, Miami, they're a ways off. They're definitely on the up and up, which I think is great for them. And with this position in the draft, I think getting a guy on offense, either someone like a Penn Sewell who can lock down that O-line decade plus, or honestly, a guy like Jamar Chase, I honestly think would be a phenomenal fit in that system. Kind of plays like Will Fuller, who's just signed with Miami on a one-year deal, but could be that long-term answer there. And, you know, really cement himself as a wide receiver one and build some chemistry with Tua. I think uh, you put a little help around him and then see where it goes. Because the thing with the NFL is you really don't know until you see. So I think, you know, actually getting two of those weapons, getting people around him, getting those building blocks in place, all of that good stuff might lead to something great for Tua. I mean, we saw what he did at Bama. So he definitely has potential to be a great quarterback. We just need to see it first. Now, one element I want to talk about here that I think it's been a little under the radar here is that there's obviously been a lot of uh, disgruntlement in Houston with the Sean Watson situation. Um, do you think that this might be a case for the Dolphins to trade for Deshaun Watson? Say you package two, maybe like they traded down to acquire more assets to put in a trade for Deshaun Watson. Do you think that's more realistic or do you think this is more of a double down on two a type of a vibe? Uh, I think the move around from Miami with picks, I think it does uh, lean more towards the doubling down on Tua uh, storyline there. I mean, the Deshaun Watson saga, things have been very quiet recently. And in my personal opinion, I think he ends up suiting up for Houston next season. And that would be his last. But again, like we really don't know yet. There's a lot of speculation still going on. It's kind of similar to the Kyle Bowery saga, where I think it may end up not meaning much in the short term. But as far as the move goes, I think uh, getting that offensive piece next to Tua with that sixth pick, again, a guy like Panay Sewell or Jamar Chase would be in Miami's best interest. I want to focus on the other side of the piece here, and that's on the San Francisco 49ers. They're the other team involved here. So they were the team that moved up to the third overall pick. They gave up picks uh, first rounders in 22 and 23. Um, do you think that a non that a QB not named uh, Trevor or Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence could be the answer in San Francisco? Like, do you think it was justifiable to like, you know, give up a lot of value to take a QB who's not a consensus top three or four pick? Well, obviously there's no shot in hell uh, San Francisco could ever get their hands on Trevor Lawrence. I mean, that number one pick in Jacksonville, that's worth its weight in gold. But uh, as some interesting information actually came out recently, we've got a uh, general manager, John Winch and head coach Kyle Shanahan. I'm going to be attending Alabama's pro day instead of Ohio State's pro day where Justin Fields is playing. They're sending their offensive coordinator there to watch Fields. But uh, as far as uh, general manager and head coach, they're actually going to watch Mac Jones play, which uh, is tipping a lot of people off to maybe they go there at three, which in my personal opinion, I'm not sure if that would be quite the move. Three seems very high for someone that uh, 
just not too long ago was considered a second, maybe even third round pick. And uh, especially considering San Francisco's year last year, I mean, they got decimated by injuries. They had those back-to-back games at MetLife Stadium against the Giants and Jets, where MetLife was known for having a horrible turf, which ended up really hurting a lot of their guys. I mean, you had guys like Jimmy Garoppolo, of course, but Raheem Mostert, Debo Samuel, Nick Bosa, George Kittle. They had, at one point, 22 guys on, like, on injury reserve. And I believe uh, overall throughout the season, I think they had about 30 guys that had to miss some time. I mean, that's just astronomically high numbers. So I think this season for San Francisco is absolutely an outlier, taking a team that went to the Super Bowl two years ago and then finishing where they did here. They're going to be trying to scramble, look for answers. But, I mean, I'd like to see a healthy San Francisco team, you know, because I think they could be closer to the team that they were, you know, two years ago than they were last year. I think they also own the record probably for like most starting running backs in one season. It seems like every uh, every game they were starting a new running back because their previous oh, one was injured. They were just absolutely running for the running backs. I mean, I just learned who Jeff Wilson Jr. was this past year, which that, that should definitely go to show exactly just how many guys they went through. I mean, Jarek McKinnon, Tevin Coleman, Raheem Mostert, like a lot of guys ended up going down at one point. They were playing, they were playing taking guys off their practice squad one week and then throwing them into the lineup the next. It was a tough year for San Francisco and injuries. I mean, a lot of teams had to suffer with it, and I think COVID may have had something to do with it, like not having those off-season programs in place to help guys build up strength and conditioning. But no team suffered more than San Francisco on the injury front. That's just facts. Yeah, no, that was a big deal for both. Uh, obviously, I'm a huge NBA guy, but obviously it affected the NFL too, where it's like they went from not playing at all to just going into the full swing of things. And we saw not only with San Francisco, but a bunch of teams, how that really affected them throughout the beginning of the year, where a lot of teams, I think you can argue, disappointed because uh, half their guys were either injured or out of shape or just like not having that proper conditioning or, uh, I guess, physical stance to uh, do well in NFL games. Yeah, and it absolutely hurt the rookies, too. I mean, not having rookie mini camps, uh, it was an extremely tough year, like, for rookies to really break out. I think we saw a bit of that, but uh, honestly, I was extremely impressed above all else with Justin Herbert, because I think quarterbacks especially need that rookie mini camp, trying to learn a playbook, how to run an offense, all these things. I mean, we all know the NFL is a quarterback's league at this point. So for quarterbacks to not get their rookie mini camp, and then to see what Justin Herbert ended up doing, not being the starter week one, and then coming in after Tyrod Taylor, that punctured along, and uh, coming in just, you know, really shining, doing his thing, end up winning rookie of the year. It was extremely impressive to see. I mean, Joe Burrow also had a great year, despite not having a rookie minicamp. And I think that's something that's not talked about enough when it comes to some of these rookies. I want to move on to the rest of the AFC. Uh, we're just going to start going down each of the teams in certain divisions. Um, so moving on, I want to talk about the Patriots here. Uh, they had a lot of money, obviously, to play around with this free agency, and they definitely capitalized on that. Uh, signing a slew of guys, uh, they brought James White back. They re-signed Cam Newton uh, to a one-year deal. Uh, Nelson Aguilar is on this team now. They added Hunter Henry, uh, a bunch of guys on the defensive end, especially on that uh, linebacker and defensive line core. Um, do you think the Patriots ended up making the right signings here, or are we pushing back a little bit? Now, honestly, like this was very surprising to see Bill Belichick open up the checkbook. This is something that he has not done in the longest time, and it's something that like kind of went against Patriots culture of old. But we can definitely see a changing of the guard happening in New England. So they definitely made a lot of great signings. Uh, two that I want to talk about specifically are Johnny Smith and Hunter Henry. Uh, Johnny Smith signing four years, 50 mil. Hunter Henry, three years, 37 mil. Now, um, these guys, honestly, 
I'm not the biggest fan of them, especially Johnny Smith. I mean, he's a great redstone threat. I have here he has eight touchdowns, just 41 catches. But I've noticed from watching his games, he can disappear completely in the passing game, go zero catches, zero yards. And his blocking is definitely subpar. The same thing can be said with Hunter Henry, who's slightly better in the blocking game, but definitely more of a pass catching tight end. Now, these guys, I think, actually are good signings for the Patriots specifically, just based on Cam Newton's play style. I mean, he's a guy that likes to use that spread offense, you know, get the field spread horizontally, check down to the tight ends a lot and create scrambling lanes for himself. Now, if there's anything that Johnny Smith and Hunter Henry are good at, it's playing in that kind of system. So I think uh, Belichick, knowing the strengths and weaknesses of his quarterback, went for guys trying to build around Cam to make this run. So uh, honestly, while I think that, you know, on most teams, these contracts look somewhat ridiculous in a Patriots mindset, I think it actually kind of makes sense. It'll be interesting to see how this offense runs as long as they don't become too one dimensional. Yeah, I'm very interested here around the Cam Newton piece uh, and especially the pieces around him, because obviously there's a big debate as, as to whether Cam Newton is the answer in New England. On the one hand, he really struggled last year, uh, especially throwing the ball down, basically just generating points on offense. But then the flip side of the argument is that they didn't have really a team around him. It was a lot of uh, uh, like expiring veterans who were a little bit past their prime, youngsters who hadn't really proven it yet. And they basically didn't have any talented guys in their team. Do you think that that last argument makes sense? Or do you think they struggled last year more because Cam Newton wasn't, isn't a good QB anymore like a couple of years ago? No. What I will say is there definitely is an argument to be made. And I think the Patriots front office is realizing that. I mean, just looking at this contract that Cam Newton signed, it's a one-year, $6 million deal. But there are a lot of incentives that could push that all the way up to $14 million. And a lot of that is based on team success. So I think this really is that make it or break it, prove it year for Cam. They're putting guys in the offense that work with Cam's style of play. So this is going to be a very Cam Newton-oriented team, a lot more so than last year where they just, you know, took what they had left after Tom Brady's departure. And, you know, Rob Gronk ended up going to Tampa Bay too. So they just really didn't have much of an offense at that point. They threw Cam Newton in there and they just tried to, like, make it work and figure out a play style. But I think this year is going to be a lot more Cam Newton oriented. So if there is a year for him to succeed well in New England, this will be the year. So this will be very telling to see if he can actually do that or not. If so, there's a chance it may be the answer for the next few years. But if he still struggles this year, it's definitely time to move on, especially if they center their entire system around him. I want to move on here to the next uh, big storyline of free agency, and that is the New York Jets. Um, there's a couple of reports that recently came out how they are not well, are not as of now considering trading down out of the second pick overall in this year's draft, and that they're looking to probably take a QB who could compete with Darnold. Um, do you think that's the right idea for New York? Do you think that they should invest more in Sam Darnold and build a couple of pieces around him by trading down, or do you think they should take a QB uh, with that second pick? Now, initially, I was kind of on the fence about this like a couple weeks ago. Just, you know, um, after seeing guys like, especially Panay Sewell, who I think is absolutely phenomenal, I thought that he'd be a great guy to fit the New York Jets system, put him across Mackay Becton, and get your tackles, get your bookends set for the longest time. But uh, after watching Zach Wilson's pro day at BYU, I mean, he was doing some phenomenal stuff there. And honestly, I'm definitely a fan at this point. I think uh, keeping Darnold, is the right move and to have that kind of quarterback competition there. But uh, I wouldn't be mad at New York at all if they end up taking Zach Wilson at two. I think that makes a lot of sense. He's definitely my QB two right now. 
And uh, I feel confident saying it'll stay there come draft day. Yeah, I'm really a big fan of him too as well, especially with the way he, that he uh, can throw on the run, make plays out of the pocket. Um, I really like him more than Sam Donald. The interesting piece here for New York is like, do you think they should shop Sam Darnold and like basically sell him high now? Because I don't think you're going to find any more value to get rid of him than like right now at this moment and say in comparison to like four or five months from now. Well, the problem with that is with that thinking is I'm not selling high on Sam Darnold. I mean, his, uh, his draft capital, his return can't be that high right now, uh, especially after the whole issue with Darnold seeing ghosts last year and things of that nature where, it might actually help the Jets to keep him in that position and either uh, that might push Darnold to start competing at the next level or really get the best out of whoever they take, hopefully Zach Wilson. And then from there, even if you end up letting him walk in free agency, that might be the right move for New York to have to build a quarterback room. I want to move on here now to the AFC North here. Um, there's a lot of interesting uh, – it's definitely an interesting division to say the least. You have a Steelers team that was very good last year and then flamed out uh, early on, uh, toward the end of the year. Uh, a Ravens team that's been frisky the past couple of years, but has obviously uh, struggled in the postseason. Uh, and then a young Browns team that's definitely building a core uh, for the future. Uh, what do you make it about the, some of the stuff that they've been doing uh, just in general over the past uh, couple of weeks or so? Yeah, so uh, this is probably one of my favorite divisions to uh, talk about and probably will be one of my favorite divisions to watch this new this next year, uh, the AFC North and the NFC West specifically, which we can talk about a bit later. But uh, big news coming out of the AFC North would be uh, Juju Smith-Schuster. He ended up uh, taking a pay cut in order to re-sign with the Steelers, where uh, he ended up getting uh, $2 million more in incentives from the Chiefs. And uh, the Ravens offered him nine mil with four mil in incentives. And he ended up staying in Pittsburgh on just a flat eight mil contract, which uh, – while maybe not like seeming like a, the right move, it makes sense for someone like Juju Smith-Schuster and what we know about him. See, from my personal opinion on Juju, I could see him not wanting to play behind guys like Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey in that Andy Reid offense. And, uh, you know, I'd be hard-pressed to see John Harbaugh try and tolerate his uh, TikTok dances in the locker room. So, uh, you know, staying in that system where Juju can be Juju and he can be that number one guy makes sense for him in Pittsburgh. Um, but honestly, I think a changing of the guard is coming in the AFC North. It's definitely time. That's been the Steelers division for about as long as I can remember. I mean, sans a couple of years of the Ravens with Joe Flacco and Ray Lewis. But uh, seeing the uh, Bengals specifically come up, they've really out of nowhere with they were doing great things with Joe Burrow so far. And if they really use that fifth pick to their best advantage, I think this could be really a four team division, which is the first time I could say that in a long time. Yeah, it's very interesting uh, because there's definitely a lot of uh, competition here in this division, especially in terms of um, how this might play out next uh, NFL season. Obviously, there's, it's a Steelers team that's still led by Ben Roethlisberger, but obviously he's getting up there in age. Uh, Ravens team with a young Lamar Jackson, who's always been a great regular season player and has struggled in postseason time a couple of times. Uh, there's obviously a question as to whether Baker Mayfield can take his game up a level uh, into more of like the top five QB level than rather like a top 10 or 11 guy. And then there's a Bengals team that was really good last year until uh, – the injury to uh, to their QB. So I'm very interested. I'd like you to also see how that division plays out. Like, who do you think out of these teams is more likely to have the biggest improvement compared to last season? 
I mean, I would also say uh, Cincinnati for that too, because uh, obviously their season really got uh, cut short with Joe Burrow tearing his ACL, and they just absolutely fell off a cliff after that. And I definitely can't blame them. But uh, they've got a lot of young guys there. I was also a huge fan of uh, T. Higgins this past year. I mean, he did work for me on my fantasy team. But uh, seeing guys like Joe Burrow and T. Higgins, and they've got a lot of young pieces there. Uh, and then on the defensive end, you've got guys like William Jackson who took a step up. So putting that fifth pick in there as well, probably probably someone like uh, Panay Sewell or Jamar Chase, or, I mean, it could be Michael Parsons even after his phenomenal pro day at Penn State. But uh, getting those young guys together, building a core, and, I mean, pro proving they can stay healthy for 16 games, I think we're going to see a lot different Cincinnati Bengals team than we saw from two years ago. I want to focus on the last of the AFC divisions here, and that is the AFC uh, South here, which I think has been one of the more underrated divisions to talk about here. You have a Texans team that's obviously in a little bit of turmoil right now in this weird transition thing, and obviously there's the Sun Watson problem. Uh, you have a team in Indianapolis. They just traded a boatload of assets to get Carson Wentz, and he they think he might be their guy. Jacksonville's got a lot of questions about where they're going to go in the future. Uh, and then Tennessee, obviously, as one of the better teams last year in the AFC, and they're trying to improve their roster. Um, I want to start with, uh, with the Texans here. What do you do with Deshaun Watson at this point? Now, see, I think the Texans front office is kind of stuck at this point because there's not really much movement going on. It's uh, very much like a Mexican standoff going on right now. We can see that from uh, Tyrod Taylor signing. I mean, he signed for one year, five and a half million dollars. To me, that screams insurance policy in case anything goes south with the Deshaun Watson saga, in case he ends up uh, demanding a trade and like actually leaves, or if he just sits out for the season. They needed a guy who could at least competently play starting quarterback for an NFL franchise, which I think Tyrod Taylor can do. So uh, while not ideal for them, uh, the recent Taylor signing to me shows that the Texans are just sitting it out and waiting it. They're trying to get that backup plan in place, but obviously Deshaun Watson is priority number one down there in Houston. Yeah, obviously the big question here is that do you move him at all? And if so, when? Like, there's been a lot of disgruntlement in Deshaun Watson's game about not wanting to play for the Texans uh, again, uh, demanding a trade. But then on the other hand, there's obviously a problem with Deshaun Watson's value. Like, our team's willing to give up a lot of assets that Houston would want to deal with the, uh, Watson in the first place. Uh, there's obviously been a, a string of uh, sexual assault allegations, whether true or untrue is a, a story to be played out. But obviously that affects the market a little bit for Deshaun Watson. Uh, and more importantly, it's a loaded QB class. And teams that are in that sort of position either want to trade down to not draft a QB because they already have a QB or they want to take a QB and one of their top five or six picks. So I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out, like, where do you think Deshaun Watson, if, like, at all, could, like, land? Because I don't really see a good situation for him. Now, if I'm Houston, uh, priority number one is making sure Deshaun Watson does not go anywhere. Like, uh, especially you're talking about these uh, sexual assault allegations. And uh, I think this uh, public drama about him uh, wanting to leave all of that ends up hurting a player's value because if a team knows that a player wants to leave, they're going to try to will ball offers. And if they're going through, you know, something legal, obviously that hurts their value as well. But talk about this loaded QB class. And yes, while it is a loaded quarterback class, the only thing that's certain in the NFL is that nothing's for certain. And you've got a guy that, you know, for certain plays well for your team in your system and who has all the makings of a bona fide superstar. Like you could take a gamble on trying to trade him, get a top pick, try to get a quarterback even this year. But at the end of the day, it's still a gamble. Deshaun Watson is the surefire thing. So if there's anything that can be done to repair this situation and keep Deshaun Watson and get him to suit up to play for this next season, 
that has to be the top priority for the Texans, no matter what. Yeah, I'm on that stance, too, because obviously, yes, the NFL is a team game, like teams win titles, not players. But the QBs are at the heart and at the center of each of those teams. Like even if you just look at the last 10 or the last 20 teams that have made the Super Bowls, except for in the past decade, uh, except for, I guess, Nick Foles and Jimmy Garoppolo, all of the QBs who have made it have been fantastic and one of the better QBs in the league. Deshaun Watson is arguably a top six or seven guy. It's like you don't want to lose him for either nothing or give him up for 60 cents in the dollar. Cause I think that's the biggest fear for Houston right now is that even if you want to trade him, like who is going to give you the appropriate value for that? Cause you don't want to be giving up um, for like giving him up for like, you know, one pick when he's, you know, worth a gajillion wins and a chance for your team to be really good. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I'd be careful about you talking about uh, Nick Foles not being a fantastic quarterback during that play in Philly. I know there's quite a few guys who might not be too happy with you there, but uh <laughs> I mean, the sentiment is there. It is a quarterback's league at the end of the day with uh, things like rule changes and scoring systems and all these things pushing more towards the offense. Uh, You need the guy who can run and command that offense and to do it at an elite level, even compared to his peers. Deshaun Watson has shown that he can do that. So, uh, I mean, that's just top priority for the Texans. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Deshaun Watson needs to stay in Houston. I want to focus on Indianapolis here. So obviously the Colts had Phillip Rivers last year uh, running the helm on offense. Uh, he retired this past year after the postseason. Uh, and now they obviously shipped uh, and acquired Carson Wentz. They gave up a third rounder and a second rounder next year. Um, do you think Carson Wentz is the answer here? Because I'm starting to uh, I'm questioning this move just a little bit. Now, I definitely understand the questioning. And uh, I definitely have some questioning of my own. But to me, the question marks are not around Carson Wentz. It's more so around the pieces around him uh, and to not knock any talent. I mean, they've got some guys with serious talent down there, like Jonathan Taylor. They've got Michael Pittman. But the thing with those two guys specifically, I mean, they're young. Like, And to throw a new quarterback into them, he's probably going to bring a new type of system as well. So, I mean, Carson Wentz does not play the same game that Phillip Rivers does. And Phillip Rivers does not play the same game that Andrew Buck does. So, I mean, to see a little bit of quarterback turnover in these past couple of years, especially these younger Colts, um, while I think the system could be there and it could work, that's the kind of thing that's going to take some time. I expect Indianapolis to get off to a relatively slow start compared to the rest of their season, whatever that may end up being. But, uh, I mean, this is not a team that's going to come firing out of the gates, and they need to understand that, work through that, and try and, you know, do the best they can with that. And I think it's going to help this year, maybe, you know, having all these off-season activities, all these training camps that they weren't able to get last year. But uh, this is going to be a touch-and-go situation. Uh, I'm definitely not – I can't say anything for certain about how I feel that Indy is going to end up playing. They're, uh, they're a team to watch, though, for better or for worse. I'm on the lines of um, – I'm on the right there with you because I think Indianapolis has the biggest regression potential probably out of all the teams last season where I can make a case that they could be 11-5 and five or a case that they'll be 7-9. and nine. Uh, Obviously, in a 16-game format, there's uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, I think the problem with Carson Wentz is that Indianapolis is trading for a guy who's hasn't been a good QB in since 2018 or 17. Like they're basically playing premium value here for past potential and past performances. And I just don't think, I think going from Philip Rivers to Carson Wentz doesn't move the needle for an Indianapolis team. That's basically stuck in the middle here where they're a borderline playoff team that didn't really improve the roster that much. They basically have the same guys that they do this season as they're going to do as they have last season. Uh, and the QB situation didn't really have an upgrade. So, like, do you think Indianapolis can go anywhere from here? Like, any is there any signs of improvement? 
again, uh, in my opinion, it's kind of tough to tell. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Jonathan Taylor, though, and I think uh, getting Carson Wentz, a guy who has uh, top 10, top 15 running back potential. In fact, I'd even say probably moving the needle closer to top 10. Uh, you know, getting him a guy like that, uh, you know, it definitely takes pressure off the quarterback and to be able to use guys like Naheem Hines in the passing game. I think uh, it's going to open up possibilities for once that uh, were tougher for him to be there within Philly. I mean, when he had that uh, MVP caliber run before he got injured, he was doing it with guys who uh, relative no-namers, didn't have very high PFF grades, weren't seen as great skill position players. So, I mean, Indy is definitely an upgrade in that terms, but uh, as far as systems and fits and all that goes, it's very wait and see down there in Indy. Uh, I want to focus on uh, two more teams here, starting off with Jacksonville. Obviously, they have the number one pick this year in the draft. Uh, are we sure they're going to take Trevor Lawrence, or do you think there's some uh, chance to maybe move down and basically just get a bunch of draft picks? Or do you think they're more likely than not going to take a TL? Oh, there is no shot that goes anywhere except Trevor Lawrence. I mean, he is the most hyped prospect since Andrew Luck, or maybe even before. But uh, there's good reason for it. I mean, he is he's an actual-born winner. Like, we've seen it. There's tough to find flaws in his game. It has to be Trevor Lawrence, especially. I think the media narrative is even pushing that more so, but there's not a single doubt in my mind that's Trevor Lawrence, and that's absolutely the right call for them. One last talk here about the uh, AFC here. I want to focus a little bit on the AFC West. Obviously, uh, not too much action here, but the big storyline, obviously, Kansas City uh, fell short last year in the postseason. Um, they acquired uh, some uh, key guys. More importantly, they signed a couple of new offensive lines to bolster that up, uh, most notably uh, Joe Thurney, uh, or Thuney, uh, I think is his name, a five-year, uh, $80 million deal. Uh, do you think that was the right move for Kansas City? Um, absolutely. I mean, uh, Joe Thurney was the best offensive lineman available in free agency. It just hurt them that that had to come at the cost of both Eric Fisher and Mitchell Schwartz. I mean, Eric Fisher did not play that well this past year. He's definitely been regressing. I believe he's around age 34. So it might be his career is definitely winding down. But as far as Mitchell Schwartz goes, also an older tackle, but we're still playing at a relatively high level. And uh, it hurt them to see him go as a cap casualty. But for the sake of getting a bit younger and to put uh, some more guys on the interior, which is absolutely where they suffered, especially in the AFC West, when you've got guys like just absolutely bull rushing them on the interior defensive line that uh, needed to be done for them. So I think overall, this position group has improved. I want to move on here to the NFC here. I'm going to start with one of the more interesting divisions here, and that's the NFC East. Um, definitely a very disappointing division last year. Uh, considering the fact that a seven and nine Reds or a Washington football team made the postseason actually ended up putting a little bit of fight and they won the division. Um, but I want to start off with uh, the Cowboys, Dak Prescott getting a massive extension uh, despite obviously that uh, very crippling uh, injury in the middle of last season. Um, do you think that was the right contract for him? Four years, 160 million, basically over uh, 120 million guaranteed. Well, I mean, first off, you and I have very different definitions of interesting when it comes to NFL divisions. But uh, as far as that Prescott signing goes, uh, I think it makes sense for them. Uh, obviously, it's a lot of money. If I'm Cowboys front office, I would have preferred to pay him a bit less. But considering what he was demanding and what he would have gotten on the open market, uh, it needed to be done for them. I mean, you just look at this last year, those first couple games. Uh, Dak was absolutely bites out, and this defense has been horrible for this past year, this Dallas defense. So uh, showing what he could do, putting that team on his back, despite not getting much help on the other side of the ball, 
going into shootouts, winning games, uh, becoming an absolute fantasy superstar. And then to see him go down and to see the absolute stark contrast when you got guys like Andy Dalton and everyone's favorite quarterback, Ben DiNucci in there, uh, you know, you see that Dak adds a lot more value than we ever thought. So I think that really needed to be done for them as much as I'd like to, uh, as much as I'd like to, you know, talk bad about uh, Dak Prescott coming from a family of Cowboys fans. It, uh, he is a great quarterback and that was a good signing for them. It needed to be done to cement their future because he is their, their quarterback of the future. Yeah, I love him or I hate him. You can argue we say he's definitely better than Danucci or whatever uh, QB Dallas threw out there. They had so many. It was like uh, Gary Gabber, I think, or something like that. They had Andy Dalton out there, and he was a blah. So, yeah, it's good to see Dak Prescott will be back probably. But do you think he can return to his old self, or are there questions here that he might not be 100%? Well, uh, honestly, if the Alex Smith situation in Washington has taught me anything, it's uh, – you know, recovery is possible. Miracles can happen. And to see that he didn't suffer like a thighsman like injury like Alex Smith did, I think as far as health goes, he'll be just fine going into the next season. I wouldn't worry about that. Uh, the thing I'd be more worried about down there, especially Ezekiel Elliott, he uh, seems almost off of it, like that he's not like regaining that 2016 form he had his rookie year. I mean, Tony Pollard is a great compliment to him. And I still am a fan of that Dallas backfield. But uh, getting Dak in there, is going to be like the biggest improvement they've seen in the longest time getting him back in there. Cause I think, you know, he is the guy to take that driver's seat for them and really take him to the next level. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what Dallas does this coming year. Cause it's arguably their division to lose. I think uh, Washington for as good as they are, that was as good as they were last year. I think they have a very low uh, ceiling this year. Uh, the New York giants aren't really going anywhere. They're basically stuck in no man's land. Uh, and the Eagles obviously are in a little bit of a tailspin right now, both in terms of the chemistry in their locker room, uh, the question as to whether Jalen Hurts is their guy. So are you on the same line that they, you think that the Cowboys are the favorites this year, or is there am I overlooking one of the uh, NFC's teams? No, if I had to pick a division winner right now, obviously like I'm the type of person where, uh, you know, there's two types of people in this world. There's people who can uh, extrapolate information based on incomplete data, and uh, I'm the second type of person. So uh, I like to wait until the draft before I try to make those kind of predictions. But if I had to right now, I definitely would go Dallas. I mean, New York's getting a lot of buzz after the Kenny Galladay and Kyle Rudolph signings. But uh, to me, with the struggles they've had on the offensive line and uh, Daniel Jones, who after watching a lot of Giants games this past year, uh, seeing his accuracy issues and, you know, seeing him force a lot of passes. And then Evan Ingram who uh, has had a lot of trouble holding on to the ball and, you know, actually making the catch, you know? So while I like the Gallaudet and Rudolph signings a lot for them, to me, it's not putting them over the edge. And I'm seeing a lot of conversation where people think this is going to put New York over the edge, but I'm not a believer. I want to focus on the NFC North here, another interesting division here. Uh, starting off with the Lions, they were the uh, very big uh, involved in a very big deal here, obviously getting rid of their icon and Matthew Stafford here uh, in exchange, getting back Jared Goff and uh, uh, first rounders in 22, 23 and a third rounder in 21. Um, do you think that was the right move uh, for the Lions? Because I think this they came away with the home run here. Absolutely. Like to them, it's it's important to like sometimes just embrace where you are in the rebuild spectrum and the line should absolutely be in rebuild mode right now. I mean, they've been treading water with Stafford, you know, not making playoffs, not really moving up or down that much. And I mean, that's a horrible place to be there for a franchise. And there's a reason why, 
you know, people talk about Detroit and they put them in the same light as people talk about, you know, Cleveland Browns a couple of years ago. But uh, it's good to see them actually, you know, sell for once and, you know, really try and focus on a rebuild. Uh, I mean, these next couple drafts are going to be so incredibly important for Detroit. I think they've hit a home run in DeAndre Swift, but uh, it's going to take more than DeAndre Swift to make playoffs, especially in the NFC North. So uh, I'd like to see what they do with these next couple picks. It's nice to get younger at quarterback with golf, try and, you know, see if he can revitalize his career a little bit. But uh, I think regardless of the golf move, move it's the uh, draft capital that's really important here. While I know Detroit fans love Stafford. I mean, who doesn't love Stafford? But uh, it was time to see him go, try to, you know, see what he can do in an offense that's built to win. Because that's absolutely not Detroit. Detroit's not a team ready to contend right now. And it's good for them to, you know, make a move that in a way acknowledges that. Yeah, I was very a very big fan of, of this trade, both for the Lions and the Rams. We'll get into the Rams piece of this in a bit. Uh, but if you're Detroit, I think they were stuck in NFL purgatory. And I honestly rather be uh, the Cleveland Browns of a couple of years ago when they went one in 15, than be a Lions team that, you know, is four and 12. And they're stuck in this middle zone where they're not like, making the playoffs. But then, you know, they have like the eighth pick and they're stuck where they can't get a good QB the like the talents there but like you're more you rather have somebody at the top two or three than at the top eight or nine uh so if you're if you're Detroit I, you should really be a fan of this obviously there's questions here about where this franchise is going is Jared Goff the answer um is there a QB you know a year or two down the road in the draft they may be able to find where the will they continue to soft on some of their veterans uh and get some value out of that so obviously out of Detroit we're gonna have a lot of questions here moving forward yeah for sure and honestly it's a good spot for them because sometimes you need to have questions as a franchise and, you know, understand that you're in a rebuild phase, but to be in a rebuild phase for as long as Detroit has and not do anything, you're obviously not getting anything out of that. You need to commit to a rebuild, you know, and focus on younger talent, draft capital. Like, do I think Jared Goff is the answer at quarterback for them long-term? No, but I don't think they need the answer right now. They shouldn't be looking for an answer right now. What they should be doing is, you know, getting that capital together, and trying to build for years down the road. I want to move on to the last two divisions here in the NFC. And I want to start with obviously one of your favorite teams, the New Orleans Saints here. A very interesting predicament here as to what they're going to do at their QB situation. Um, they re-signed Jameis Winston to a one-year deal. Uh, and obviously he'll be one of the main QBs in line. Uh, but they also have, uh, what's his name, Tyreek Hill? Or not Tyreek Hill, what's his Taysom. name? Taysom Hill. Yeah, t- thank you. Hill and knife. Well, yeah. And obviously there's a big question as to whether who's going to start. Do you think that Jameis should get the spot or do you think that uh, Taysom Hill has a better chance? Yeah. Now I've had this conversation a lot in the past few weeks and I am absolutely team Jameis hundred percent of the way. And people think it's because I don't like Tamer, T- Taysom or I don't think he can play the quarterback position. Well, that's not it at all. I personally love what Taysom Hill brings to the New Orleans Saints, but to lock him in as a starting quarterback, it really shrinks down their offensive playbook. And I think anyone who plays with the Saints and Madden knows this. Uh, there's, they even have playbooks named after Taysom Hill and that. It shows he lines up in squat wide receiver. He lines up at tight end. He lines up at running back. He's a special teamer. He's the only quarterback in NFL history with a blocked punt. So I think keeping Taysom Hill in the role that he's in now, not only does it add depth in so many positions, but it also expands this offensive playbook where you could have essentially two quarterbacks out at the same time. I mean, I can't name another quarterback who can do what Taysom Hill does. And I think putting Jamison at that starting quarterback role allows Taysom to come in and do what he's done for the past two years in this kind of, you know, utility knife role. Uh, Jamis, I think uh, learning under Drew Brees for a year has been great for him. I've been 
you know, listening to all of his press conferences, the way he talks about this past year, it's given me a lot of hope for improvement for him. Do I expect the Saints to be Super Bowl contenders? I don't, but uh, I would like to see some improvement out of Jameis. It sounds like that uh, touchdown to interception ratio is going to look a little more like what it should instead of that uh, 30 for 30. But um, I'm excited to see what he, can, what he can do, you know, especially around guys like Kamara, who should be given the keys to this offense and really be the driving force there. Yeah, I'm more in agreement with you there. I think what makes Taysom Hill so valuable is that he acts as like this uh, Swiss Army knife of sorts where he's doing all these different things in the slot uh, at the running back position as a blocker. Um, and basically you can use him in certain moments to just like try to trick up the defense here, uh, do something a little bit different here. But then on the flip side, obviously, Jameis Winston has a lot of questions. There's uh, obviously he's very interception prone. There's the infamous 30 for 30 season. You can make a case that uh, the I would put maybe five dollars down to win a little bit of money if like the odds uh, favor another 30 for 30 season. I don't know. We'll see about that. Um, but yeah, I'm in agreement with you there. I think the big question for New Orleans here is that where are they going as a franchise? Obviously, they're very uh, hard cap with the salary. Uh, they have a, they basically owe a lot of money to bear a lot of players. Uh, and obviously, it's a new direction because Drew Brees is no longer at the helm. Uh, and you have a lot of questions both in the short term and the long term about where that team's going. Yeah. Um, so personally, I think obviously I don't think J- Jameis or Taysom would be the long term answer at quarterback. But uh, after having a guy like Drew Brees for 15 years, you know, I'm definitely a little spoiled to always have that long-term answer at quarterback. So it's almost kind of, while it's extremely nerve-wracking, it's almost kind of exciting to be in a position as a fan where, you know, do I know who the quarterback next season is going to be? No, I don't. And it's kind of exciting to see, you know, depending on how they do this season, it's going to answer a lot of questions about, you know, when it comes to draft or free agency based on where they're picking in the draft you know, to see like who that guy is going to be. I wouldn't even begin to venture a guess right now because I think the Saints could just as easily make it to the divisional round or even the NFC championship. But at the same time, you know, if things completely fall apart there, is there a chance they go, you know, we go back to the years of seven and nine? Absolutely. Uh, one last team here in the NFC South here, and that is the, uh, obviously the, depend- the defending champion Tampa Bay Bucks here. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they re-signed a lot of their guys. Uh, they put Chris Godwin on the franchise tag. They re-signed uh, Gronkowski, Fournette, uh, and a lot of their defensive guys, especially at the linebacker and defensive tackle position. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, you're probably leading toward this. Too, they're the favorites to come out of the NFC South as the division winners. Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, my, my saving grace last year after seeing all of the moves that they were making was uh, the idea that it's going to take them some time to put things together, because especially with the difference between Tom Brady and Bruce Arians. I mean, the way that the two of them, both offensive minded people, uh, have played offense very differently. Bruce Arians' offense have always been very uh, vertical, like you could see it with Jameis Winston. I mean, you don't get to 30 touchdowns and 30 interceptions throwing just checkdowns. But Tom Brady has made his money off of short routes and spreading the defense out horizontally. So to see last year, like something having to give was actually quite interesting. Because if you really like paying attention to Bucks games last year, you could see them start to play that Bruce Arians uh, deep threat style. And that's where the Bucks started to struggle. It's where the Saints picked up their two wins against them in the regular season. But then towards the end of the season, going into the playoffs, it's a lot more shorter routes coming from guys like, you know, notable deep threats like Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. Seen a lot of running back checkdowns, you know, to see like Ronald Jones get involved in the passing game a lot more than he has last year with Jameis Winston. So this offense is definitely trending more in the direction of the way that Tom Brady plays. And obviously that's what 
led them to success because as much as I hate to admit it, Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. And there is no doubt in my mind about that. So to see them play Tom Brady's way is only going to mean good things for the Bucs. Oh, I want to focus on one last division here. we got about like five or so minutes left here. But the NFC sure. West is obviously another interesting division here. Uh, there's yeah. a Ram- We had a Rams team that was very good last year and obviously made the Matthew Stafford trade. Uh, there's a Arizona Cardinals team that almost made the playoffs last year, and they have a lot of upside this coming season. Uh, and there's a couple other interesting uh, teams here. So I want to start off with the, the Rams here. Do you think that they're legit Super Bowl contenders now that they have Matthew Stafford at the helm? Uh, it's very interesting to see. Uh, I think uh, – Matthew Stafford always been a huge stat patter, big, you know, huge arm. So uh, the potential is absolutely there for them, for them to get back to like the greatest show on turf. But uh, I mean, I guess my one biggest knock on Stafford would be his recent reliance on Kenny Galladay. You know, there would be uh, days where I, I mean, he was a huge fantasy crush of mine for the past couple of years and that's obviously not changing, but uh, I would sit Stafford if Gallaudet was sitting based on his uh, increased reliance on him. So if he can like build that same kind of repertoire with some combination of Robert Woods and Cooper Cup and to get that fail safe at wide receiver, I think there's no reason why the Rams couldn't become one of the best offenses in the league, especially with Cam Akers making leaps and bounds, overtaking guys on that running back depth chart, like proving himself as the undisputed RB1 in Los Angeles. So uh, honestly, I think the potential is there for them to make that run. But uh, it does a lot of it depends on chemistry issues. So we'll see. Matthew Stafford definitely has some dark horse MVP potential here. I know it's crazy as that sounds, but let's say the Rams, you know, go 13 and three. Uh, more likely than not, Matthew Stafford puts up def- decent numbers and the Rams are the best team in the NFC. He could win MVP. Like, would it be crazy, you know, consider him as that? Or is that a little bit far-fetched? I mean, I don't personally see it happening, but uh, as a dark horse candidate, he's in the conversation there. In the same kind of conversation that Kyler Murray was in this past year where uh, obviously he wasn't my pick for MVP like going into the season, but uh, I wouldn't have ruled it out completely. He is a perfect dark horse candidate, just like Stafford is this year. And personally, I would love that. I'd love to see a guy like Stafford. He reminds me a lot of uh, the Drew Brees of the seven and nine years, you know, the stat patter who would do incredible things with these great comebacks and then not get much help from the rest of his team. I'm really happy for Stafford to be put in a position where he has a team around him that's committed to winning, that he's got the defensive player of the year on the other side of the ball. He's going to make sure that he's on the field early and often. He's got a group of wide receivers around him. He's got a better offensive line, you know, and he's got an offensive minded head coach. Like I'm excited to see like what Stafford can do there. I am too as well. Cause there's a bunch of interesting, obviously storylines with this Stafford uh, on those Lions teams. The Lions never had a above a top 20 defense uh, besides Calvin Johnson and a couple, and I guess Kelly Galladay, they were, he didn't really have any good wide receiver core. Uh, the running game for them was always inconsistent. Now Matthew Stafford has no excuses. They've got, arguably a top two or three uh, defense in the entire league, or easily the best defender in the entire league at the uh, defensive end position, Aaron Donald. Oh, they got a very deep running back and wide receiver course. Yeah, I'm very interested to see what the Rams do uh, this coming uh, NFL season. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting. But I mean, this division is extremely tough. I think it might be the most competitive division, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if we get three playoff teams coming out of the West with – San Francisco who can hopefully stay healthy. Seattle, who obviously put together a great year before their playoff run, like with that combination of Russell Wilson and DK Metcalf. And then Arizona, who's made some incredible moves. I mean, I know you've talked about JJ Watt beforehand, but uh, 
getting a guy like AJ Green in free agency on that one year deal who could, you know, help to complement DeAndre Hopkins or if need be replace Larry Fitzgerald because his career right now is extremely up in the air. No one knows if he's returning to Arizona, if he's going to a different team or if he's retiring. It's been real quiet, but getting the guy who plays like Larry Fitz to put next to DeAndre Hopkins was a great move for Arizona. And then getting Malcolm Butler to help fill out that cornerback depth and, you know, rub a little salt in Seattle's wound by having to see Malcolm Butler twice a year. It's going to be a fun rivalry. Yeah, the NFC West is definitely one of the more – it's arguably the best and most competitive division probably this upcoming year. I mean, it's a former uh, contender in San Francisco. It's got an Arizona Cardinals team that's got a lot of upside. And it's got a Seahawks team that, hey, when Russell Wilson's on the helm, they are a guaranteed, you know, eight to ten wins probably on the year. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see if maybe, honestly, there could be a chance that all four of these teams could make – or at least three of these four teams could make the playoffs next year. Yeah, I'd, I'd be willing to bet about three NFC West teams making the playoffs. I mean – Four would be great just to see with the new 17 system that they employed last year, because mathematically it is possible for every team in a division to make the playoffs. While personally, I think that's just too difficult with divisional games happening six out of the 16, well now 17 games it's going to be played by the NFL. But um, technically anything's possible. And I'm really excited to see how the NFC West actually shapes out. Yeah, one last question here. You brought it, you just mentioned it up right now. Obviously, the NFL passing a new rule uh, that obviously now allows for a 17-game season. So from this point on moving forward, uh, there will be a week seven or week 18 in the NFL. We will not actually have 17 games uh, worth of action here. Uh, how do you think this affects the week going forward? Now, I, I think this definitely has numerous effects on it. I mean, first off, I'm not sure really how they're going to schedule the 17 games. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, uh, there is a system to how they schedule the 16 game schedule. So that way every team is guaranteed to face every other team at least four years. You know, you have your six games against your three divisional rivals. And then every year you rotate, you play a different division in the NFC and a different uh, division in the AFC. And then from there uh, with your remaining two games, you've got a, uh, say you're an NFC team and you just won your division, you're going to play the division winners of the other two NFC divisions that you're not playing. So for New Orleans, for example, they've got their games against Atlanta, Carolina, and Tampa Bay. They always happen. For this past year, they pulled the NFC North and the AFC West. It's on a four-year rotation. And then there, since they're not playing anyone from the NFC East or the NFC West, they played the Eagles and I believe the 49ers because they won the division the previous year. So this 17th game really kind of throws a wrench in the works because they had a good system going and they've been doing a 16 game schedule since the 1970s. But uh, the only thing that we know is it's rumored Browns are going to host the Cardinals for this uh, like 17th game on week 18 of the season, since they're still only going to be one by week. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how it's going to be scheduled and how it's going to mess up their uh, schedule, but uh I'm sure since they added it, there is a new system that's going to be in play. It's just going to take some time for guys like me to learn it. Uh, the players for sure are not happy at all. I mean, not getting an extra bye week and having to play this extra game with no money, like no additional money, and then uh, an increased risk of injury. Because, of course, every time you step on the field, anything can happen. Uh, players are definitely not happy about it. A lot of them have been sounding off on social media. And uh, I think the last thing to note about this uh, increased schedule is uh, – the chance for some single season records to get broken, like playing this extra regular season. There's maybe going to be some asterisks if this isn't uh, permanent. And if it is, we might have to go back to separating by, you know, this was in a 16 game season. This was in a 17. If this stays, 
I'm confident that particularly I think Derrick Henry has a shot of breaking the single season rushing record, which I believe is currently held by Eric Dickerson. But uh, I mean, if this sticks around for a couple of years, you give Derrick Henry three, four years, that that record's gone. All righty, Austin, thank you so much for joining the pod. Yeah, of course. Anytime you want to take a break and talk some football, you know where to find me. Yeah, and for those of you who haven't tuned in yet, uh, tuned in yet uh, every Tuesday and Thursday, new episodes will be released on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, thank you so much, and everyone else, uh, have a great rest of your day. All right. See ya.